All right, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the second half of the chapter, finishing up chapter 2 today. It's on page 1037 if you have one of the Bibles from the welcome table. Uh, The structure of this passage is going to sound familiar. It's going to feel familiar to the first half of chapter 2. The way verses 1 through 10 are laid out. Paul's going to remind his Gentile readers of what they once were, what Christ has done for them, and what they now have become in Christ. Very similar to the way the first 10 verses were set up. Only this time he's going to focus on how um, that affects their relationships with other people, namely with the Jewish believers. He's going to show how being reconciled to God through Christ enables the Gentiles and the Jews to be reconciled to one another through Christ. Now, as Gentiles ourselves, because we're not Jewish, okay? And if you are Jewish, then, uh, then this passage still applies to you because God is reconciling us together. Uh, but in general, as Gentile believers ourselves, today's passage is going to comfort us with the reminder that we've now been included in the family of God. But it's also going to challenge us to think about the way we view others who aren't like us, Okay? And so I want to read through Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, and, uh, and then pray for the Lord's help for us to understand what's here, and then we'll dig in. It says this, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his, of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, by which he put hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints." and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it's true, it's good. Uh, it, It teaches and trains and rebukes and corrects us. Lord, we pray that today that our hearts would be ready to hear from you, that your spirit would enlighten our eyes, that we might know every spiritual blessing we've been given in Christ through this passage, and that as those who have been transformed and included into the family of God, that you would give us a greater heart for those who remain on the outside, uh, excluded, uh, and that they might be included through Christ himself and that you would give us the desire and the willingness uh, to go out and proclaim uh, the way to be included in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Inclusion, identity, individualism. 
These are kind of buzzwords in our culture. These are things that, that our culture touts as, as ultimate things, right? Our culture is full of individuals who won't allow anyone else to tell them who they are, but who will also want to tell everyone else what they should be. These individuals form themselves into like-minded groups uh, that demand inclusion into every other group, while at the same time they claim the right to exclude any individual or group that doesn't accept them for who they've determined themselves to be. And so as a result, we live in this cancel culture that's uh, fueled by this demand for inclusion. It's a self-made dichotomy that's a product of an identity crisis of, of people that don't know who they are. And it's creating more and more tension between our culture and the church. And I think we're going to feel this more and more as the years continue. But if we're not confident in the new identity that Christ has given us as individual believers, but also as a, a, a church of believers together, then we'll be tempted to let the culture define who we should be and how we should behave, or we'll follow in the culture's footsteps and we'll try to determine those things ourselves rather than let God determine those things for us. So we need to understand something here, that the church, by its very nature, must be both inclusive and exclusive. Because the gospel, by its very nature, is both inclusive and exclusive. No one gets to become a member of God's family by determining their own identity. We must all be changed by Christ and given a new identity in him. God never includes anyone in his kingdom on their own terms. But he freely invites everyone into fellowship with him on his terms. And so this morning, our, our, our main idea to keep in mind as we go through this passage is this. Because Christ has included us into something greater than ourselves. We need to work together in our new identity to invite others into what Jesus has exclusively made us to be. Okay? And so that starts by remembering that we were once excluded in hostility. Look at verse 11 and 12. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now remember, this comes on the heels of verses 1 through 10, Paul just got done telling these Gentile believers that their salvation was a, a gift from God so that none of them could boast in anything that they had done. And here he shows them how precious that gift is by reminding them what they lacked before they received this gift. Paul lists several things here that were characteristic of the Gentiles before God saved them by grace through faith. First, he says that at one time they were known by their nationality and the Jews were hostile toward them because of it. In Genesis 17, God made a covenant with Abraham and he told him that he would make Abraham the father of many nations and that he would be Abraham's God and the God of Abraham's offspring. And God instituted circumcision as a sign of the covenant and required all males in each household in each generation to be circumcised as a sign of that covenant. To be uncircumcised was to be cut off from the covenant people of God. So Gentiles were uncircumcised and therefore they were cut off from God's people. The only way at that point that they could be included into the people of God was if they became Jewish, uh, Jewish proselytes. It, it, they had to convert to Judaism and become Jews themselves. 
Those who didn't convert were called the uncircumcised by the Jews as a derogatory way of identifying who's in and who's out, who are insiders and who are outsiders. And Paul adds a brief commentary at the end of verse 11 about circumcision. He says that it's done in the flesh by human hands. In other words, it's a physical symbol, not a determining factor. In his letter to the Romans, he elaborates more on it, Romans chapter 2. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. I think the New Living Translation gives us a helpful rendering of Ephesians 2.11. says this, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. Paul goes on to remind his Gentile readers that while they were outsiders, they were without Christ as their Messiah and King because they were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. They were cut off as foreigners, and as foreigners, they didn't know the covenants that God had made with the people of Israel. That left them without hope and without God in the world. They had many gods, but they didn't have the one true God. They were dead in their sins and trespasses and children under wrath, as Paul put it in the first half of chapter 2 in Ephesians. Now, we read this, and we need to remember that this was once our position, too, even though it's not anymore. For us, this is past tense, but it's still worth remembering where God has brought us from. We are Gentiles saved by grace through faith because God has circumcised our hearts. And so now we call ourselves what? Believers, right? Because it's through faith in Christ that we're saved. And as insiders into God's kingdom, we've got to be careful that we don't use the term unbeliever in a derogatory way when we're talking about outsiders. When we look at someone who's without Christ, we need to remember that we were at one time just like them without Christ and without hope. At that time, we were excluded from every spiritual blessing that Paul described in Ephesians chapter 1. There was a time when we were foreigners to God's promises in the gospel, either because we hadn't heard it or because we didn't believe it. So we need to remember that once we didn't know what we were missing, and we didn't know that we needed what we didn't have. There's an ignorance there. There's a darkness there that needs light, right? There's no room in the church for hostility toward those who are outsiders. We need to guard against being critical of others based on how we view them outwardly or based on the assertions that they make about themselves. We don't have to agree with them in those assertions, and in most cases, we shouldn't agree with them because oftentimes those assertions are made from a worldly point of view, right? We just read 2 Corinthians 5. It says, we no longer regard each other from a worldly perspective. What does the world regard each other from? A worldly perspective. And so we need to disagree with those where they don't line up with the biblical picture. But we should never look down on an unbeliever because he or she is not a believer like you and me, right? 
It's the Holy Spirit who enables us to understand who God is. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us to see clearly who we are with, without God and who we are with God and to see our need for God through Christ. And so as believers who've been given the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Spirit himself has given us the ability to look past the outer facades that people attempt to attach to their inner being. And we can see their deeper need to know the God who created them because the Spirit opened our eyes to our own need for the very same thing. And so we can look at them with compassion as people who are lost. It's one of the reasons we call unbelievers lost. Not knowing who you truly are is what it means to be lost. Look at our culture today. It's super confused about who, they are, about who, who people are. They forget that they've been made in, in, in the image of God himself. We dehumanize so quickly. We don't go deep enough into uh, identity. Not knowing who you are truly is what it means to be lost. And so as a church, as believers in Christ, when we see someone who's lost, when we know that we were once lost, but in Christ we've been found, what do we do when we see someone who's lost? We help them find the way, right? We don't road rage and tell them to get out of our way. We don't shout at the culture. We don't yell at them and tell them they're headed for fire and brimstone while we race on past them, right? Slamming on the horn. We pull over. We show them the dangers, of, of the road that they're on, the course of the world that Paul talks about in, in this first half of chapter two. We give them a new map, right? The map of the gospel. We need to understand that you can disagree with someone and still have compassion on them. The world does not know this. At least not right now. Feels like they've lost every sense of that. But as a church, we need to be able to disagree with the world and still love the people in the world with compassion. We should be the shining example of this truth. We need to assess, we need to distinguish between those who appear to be believers and those who appear to be unbelievers. We should, but we should never be judgmental toward those whom we're assessing. We should always be charitable. We should always long for those without hope and without God to find both in Christ. And compassion should lead us then in humility and love to share the gospel with them as we pray for the Spirit to open their eyes to the truth and change their hearts to believe it. We need to remember that we were once excluded in hostility, but now we've been brought together in peace. Look at verse 13. But now in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made it of no effect, the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. Back in verse 4, if you remember, we heard those two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, right? That, that, that change everything for us. But God, right? And here in verse 13, we're reminded once again that we have been gloriously changed, but now in Christ Jesus. 
We just need to put those words on repeat over and over and over again in our minds. We need to understand that Jesus is the change agent. He is the reason that we can say at one time and but now, right? It all pivots on him. What does Paul say that Jesus did for his Gentile readers? Jesus brought them near. The Ephesians were far away both physically and spiritually, Ephesus, if you remember, it's on the eastern or the western coast of modern-day Turkey. It's about 1,100 miles away from Jerusalem by land. Now, the temple was in Jerusalem, and that was the central place of worship for God's people. And every year, the Jews would make, from all over the, the, the surrounding nations, would make a trek there. Um, but it, it's where they, they performed many of the customs, held most of the festivals. It would be difficult for Gentile believers living in Ephesus to regularly worship according to Jewish customs because they were so far away. When the central hub for all of that was in Jerusalem itself. And even when they did make it to Jerusalem, they were only allowed so far into the temple compound because uh, they were Gentiles. And the outermost courtyard of the temple was called the courtyard of the Gentiles. I guess that was nice of the Jews to, to give them that space. But that, that courtyard was separated from all of the other inner courtyards where the Jews could go by this wall. It was like a half-height half wall, and it had a number of entrances in it. And at each entrance, there was a sign that warned the Gentiles that if they went through that entrance into the Jewish courtyard, they were signing their own death certificate. Could you imagine if we had a sign like that out here at the door? Like, this is for Redeemer folk only. Enter at your own risk. You might leave horizontally, right? This is what the, the Gentiles, like, they, they were there in the, in the courts, but they could only go up to this wall, and if they went past it, they would be killed. That doesn't sound very welcoming. So this is probably what Paul's referring to when he says that Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility in verse 14. But we need to understand that the Jewish law was the reason for the wall. That, 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 that the Jews were still a distinct people of God separated by, uh, by the practices that God gave them that were, uh, were supposed to make them pure and holy and righteous. And so the Torah itself, the law also served as a symbolic dividing wall that separated Israel from all the other nations by the commands and regulations that the Jews followed in it. But through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus made of no effect the religious customs and the ceremonial regulations of the law. He perfectly fulfilled the commands of the Torah in his life. And in his death and resurrection, he removed believers from the condemnation of the law because of their inability to to keep it. And the regulations of the old covenant were replaced by the realities of the new covenant in Christ's blood given to all who have faith in him. Listen to Colossians 2, 13 through 17. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what is to come. 
The substance is Christ. So this means, this is huge, because this means that the Gentiles no longer had to convert to Judaism in order to be included as God's people. All the customs and all the festivals and all the regulations that God gave to the Jews were ultimately to point them to Christ. And once Christ came, those customs and those festivals and regulations became unnecessary. They were shadows. Jesus is the substance. So now, in Christ, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, right? There's only Christian. And so we no longer regard one another in the way that the world does. Because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. What is the new? It's Christian. Christ has created in himself one new man from the two, reconciling them to one another in him and bringing peace to the hostility between them. He is their peace and they've been reconciled together in him. They've been recreated together in him. Look at verse 16. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Whoops, almost went too far. Why did Jesus make one new man from the two? So he could reconcile everyone to God in the same way. No one has an advantage then over the other. It's not by works so that no one can boast, right? All were excluded from God through their sin. Paul makes that very clear in the first 10 verses. Jew and Gentile alike became children under wrath because they failed to keep the law. But all are reconciled to God through Christ as Paul made clear in verses four through seven. And the same spirit now dwells in both Jew and Gentile believer through faith and gives them both equal access to the Father in prayer and in worship. They have no cause for hostility with one another because they've been made the same in and through Jesus Christ. Through faith. You see, hostile men put Jesus to death on the cross, but Jesus' death on the cross killed hostility between men because Jesus first removed hostility between man and God by reconciling man to God through the cross. Back in Colossians chapter 1, it says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds and as expressed in your evil actions, and he's, he's referring to their hostility toward God, which ultimately results in hostility toward one another. Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our peace. I think no one would argue that there is a lot of hostility in our country and across the world, in just about every major arena, right? 
feels like nothing but one-sided shouting across news headlines and social media posts and yard signs with each group blaming the other side for the division that's so clearly evident. But the solution that each group offers for, is for all the other groups to conform to them. You just take my view and it'll all get fixed. But that only creates more hostility. Jesus offers a better solution, conformity to him. He's the only one that can require that in at work. As believers living in an angry world that has many different views, we need to remember that Christ is our worldview. We get bombarded by worldviews all day long, every day. And if we're not firmly rooted in the word of God, we're going to get swallowed up in those worldviews and forget what God has called us to. Christ is our worldview. We must be convinced that peace and reconciliation between human beings can only come when human beings are first reconciled to God. And reconciliation with God only comes through the cross of Christ. That means that we need to be certain that racial reconciliation and social justice are needs of a broken world, not solutions to the brokenness. We need to know that political platforms and agendas will never be able to move divided hearts to the center aisle. And we need to understand that even though a vaccine may be able to stop COVID, it cannot stop the curse of death brought about by the sin of mankind. We need to be persuaded that there is only one kind of good news that truly brings peace. There's only one gospel that we ought to be proclaiming to the world, and that's the gospel of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. The life of obedience to God that Jesus lived on our behalf, the forgiveness of our sins through his atoning sacrifice on the cross in our place, the triumph over the powers of sin and Satan and death and the world through his resurrection and his ascension and his exaltation as king above all things. The peace that we now experience with God and each other through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. Every spiritual blessing that we've been given through our union with him and the eternal life that we eagerly await in which we will be physically with Christ forever and God will display without end the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. This gospel is the word of truth. This is the gospel of salvation that the Gentile readers in Paul's letter to the Ephesians heard and believed, like he said in chapter 1. It's the gospel that he explained in the first half of chapter 2. It's the gospel that was proclaimed to both Jew and Gentile, to those who were near and to those who are far. It's the gospel that we needed to hear. It's the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we need to be determined to share this gospel and only this gospel with the world. But we need to be determined to share it peacefully with others even if and when they are hostile toward us. This gospel can't be shared in a one-sided shouting match from behind the comfort of a keyboard and a screen or on a yard sign or a bumper sticker or a t-shirt. It needs to be shown and shared in, a, in word and deed with those who are physically near to us but spiritually far from God. This is why we say take the good news with you. Because you go back out into a world that desperately needs to know who they are. 
We need to guard against forcing them into religious practices and calling that a reconciliation with God. And we also need to guard against conforming the practices of the church to the practices of the world and calling that reconciliation with man. The gospel conforms our practices to Christ and the gospel forces people to face their need to be reconciled with God through Christ. And the gospel allows us to be reconciled to one another in Christ. Only Christ reconciles us together with God and each other and we've been given the ministry of reconciliation as followers of Jesus. We plead on his behalf with everyone, be reconciled to God. That's where it starts. We were once excluded in hostility, but now we've been brought together in peace and we're being reconstructed into something greater than ourselves. Look at verse 19. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. We need to understand that our new identity in Christ is not only an individual identity. It's now a corporate one. Our identity as individual believers is inextricably linked to our new relationships to one another as fellow believers. Paul uses three illustrations to describe the Gentile believers' new corporate identity with the Jewish believers. They're now fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. They're now fellow members in the family of God. And they're now fellow stones in the temple of God. These are all true of, of all of those of us who are in Christ as well as those that Paul's writing to here. Now, foreigners and strangers were short-term visitors and long-term residents who did not have the rights of citizenship in the land that they were in. But Paul says that the Gentile believers are now fellow citizens with the rest of the saints. Notice he doesn't say, you are fellow citizens with the Jews. He says, with the saints. That's because he's talking about a heavenly citizenship, not an earthly one. They don't need to become Jews to become Christians because there is no longer Jew and Gentile in Christ. There is only Christian. Every believer, whether Jew or Gentile, is a citizen and saint in God's kingdom. That's why Paul addressed these Gentile believers as the faithful saints in the opening part of his letter. Remember that a saint is just another way to describe someone who trusts in Christ. It's not a special office. It's not a special designation in the church. Saints are simply believers. So everyone who believes is a saint and a citizen in the kingdom of, of God. It's an international kingdom. I think we're, we, we can easily tend to be short-sighted in this area. It's an international kingdom with no foreigners and no strangers. Not only are we fellow citizens, but we're now members of the same family. We're all part of God's household as his adopted children. That's why we, we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ, right? 
The church is God's family and his household is built on the foundation of the gospel that our brothers, the apostles and the prophets, preached. And our greatest brother, Jesus Christ himself, is the chief cornerstone of the household. The stability and the strength of the church rests on Christ. You remove Jesus and the whole thing crumbles. As members of God's household, we're being fitted together like stones to form a holy temple for God's spirit to dwell. Not only does he dwell in each individual believer as a down payment for our inheritance to come, but he dwells in the church as believers come together in worship to God. This is why we don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. Aren't you grateful? We are now God's temple and we worship him in spirit and in truth all over the world. We can just pause for a second and think about all of the people across all of the the whole of creation on this earth that are worshiping God together right now in various ways and in various places. It's a glorious inheritance in the saints. It's a wealth. Because the Spirit dwells in us, God's presence and care are with us wherever we go and wherever we gather together. It's important for us to understand that God saves individuals, and that that means that each individual must come to faith in Christ through the gospel. But it's also important to understand that God saves individuals into a community far greater than themselves. This is why church membership is important, and not just a a formality, because it's the visible representation of the individual uh, of the invisible. Excuse me, church. It's the visible representation of these corporate realities that Paul describes here. When we covenant together as a local church, we help remind each other that we're not just citizens of Menonk or the surrounding communities. We're citizens first of heaven together, God's kingdom. We're, we're committing to share our lives with one another as a family. We let each other into our lives. We get, as Paul Tripp puts it, intentionally intrusive with one another, Right? As brothers and sisters, we need to know each other. We grow together. We meet each other's needs. We come together regularly to worship God through his word and by his spirit who dwells in us and joins us together as one. And we also need to remember that because God alone can truly see the heart of of a human being and know those who are truly his, the visible church will always contain a mix of believers and unbelievers, and that's also why church membership is important. Because while we should never discriminate in hostility, we still need to do our best to distinguish between the two groups and understand that that's the loving thing to do. Why? Because it's unloving to allow someone to believe that he or she is reconciled to God when that person is living in unbelief. We need to point them to Jesus and plead with them to submit themselves to him. The only thing that will exclude someone from the family of God is that person's exclusion of Christ. There's no citizenship in heaven without Christ's lordship in your heart. And so as citizens of God's kingdom, do we help outsiders see the merciful heart of our king and invite them to submit to his loving rule? while also making it clear 
that to be a participant in the kingdom, you have to go through Christ. As brothers and sisters in the family of God, do we encourage one another and build one another up in the grace of our Father? Or do we try to conform each other into our own image? I have two sisters. I don't want to look like them. That'd be weird. Do we offer comfort and help when we see each other in need? As stones firmly set in the temple of God, do we worship him together in spirit and in truth, even if we have different preferences on worship style? Even if we're conflicted in how we're we're, uh, uh, doing things because of COVID? We need to look at outsiders with compassion and seek to invite them in. But we must not simply invite them to church. We must invite them to Christ. The gospel by design is both inclusive and exclusive. It's for everyone to hear indiscriminately, but only those who believe it will receive its benefits. And as those who now share in its benefits, we must guard against excluding others in hostility. We need to seek to come together in peace through Christ, who is our peace. And we need to help people see that the new identity God has given us together is greater than any identity that we can create individually for ourselves. True reconciliation with one another can only take place when we're truly reconciled to God and reconciliation comes exclusively through the cross of Christ. So may we continue to be a church as as we move into 2021. We need to be a church that holds firmly to the gospel as the means of reconciliation and heralds it freely to anyone and everyone in the hopes that they would believe it and be included in our growing family. Amen.